The Old Testament reading for this, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes from the prophet Isaiah the sixth. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter in the church in Corinth, the 14th chapter. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. This is the word of the Lord. And the Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I begin today's sermon, I am going to assume that everyone listening is familiar with and has committed to memory the modern-day classic movie, Wayne's World. Now, based on some of the looks I'm getting, I'm going to assume I was wrong. But those of you who know the movie and have looked at the theme of today's sermon already have the scene in your head. The two protagonists, Wayne and Garth, after seeing the metal megastar Alice Cooper in concert, are given backstage passes to meet the rock legend in person. And expecting the backstage to be a rowdy bacchanal of drugs and scantily clad women... They're surprised to find the band in quiet, thoughtful discussion of the history of the word Milwaukee. Awed by Alice Cooper's knowledge, his legendary status, his sheer awesomeness on every front, Wayne and Garth fall to their knees, bowing, and start chanting, We're not worthy! We're not worthy! As they have done for many, many stars before him. It's become the cliché thing to do when you're in the presence of a superstar or something to do sarcastically when someone is not so super of a star. To bow down in adoration, to worship and praise the person, and to loudly proclaim that you are not worthy to even be in their presence and greatness. And while it's funny sometimes, it's never actually deserved. Not for humans, at least. As cool as Alice Cooper, Gabby Douglas, or Chris Pratt might be, they're still just people like us. And there's no need to fawn and bow as if they were gods. And yet, we do. And at the same time, we fail to bow in reverence when we actually should. So often, we completely fail to recognize the fact that when we come into this building, when we come before this altar we should be falling to our knees. We should be bowing in worship and humility. We absolutely should be crying out with no sarcasm whatsoever, we're not worthy. Because when we gather together as a congregation, this altar, it's not just a symbol of God's presence, but this is the place where he himself comes to us as he has promised. And unlike the worldly superstars who do get our worship, awe, and adoration, God alone is deserving of it, because he alone is truly holy and righteous. And that honestly presents a problem for sinners like us. Because by our sin, we truly don't deserve to be in the presence of God. Not just in a, he's so much better, he's in a league of his own, we really don't belong here. No. There were rules about this. 
And in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah knows those rules. Unclean people, sinners, cannot be in the presence of a perfect and righteous and holy God. In his vision, he sees God sitting in his throne above the temple. The voice of just the angels shakes the threshold of the temple, shakes the very foundation of it. And Isaiah realizes he should not be there. This is not something that he is worthy of seeing. He should not be in the presence of such holiness and perfection. And so he cries out, Woe is me! Because he knows he's unclean. He says, I am undone, meaning I am about to be annihilated. I'm about to be made nothing because I am filthy and wretched. Isaiah, who was a priest, a proclaimer of God's word, who to all the people around him looked to be the most pious and righteous and holy of people in the presence of God's holiness, he recognizes that his righteousness is like a filthy rag. It's worthless. And he deserves to die just for being in the presence of God. God is holy and almighty, and he does not tolerate sin in his presence. And so Isaiah, recognizing that he is by nature sinful and unclean, rightly cries out, I am going to die. Because all it takes is one sin, one tiny blemish, and you are not worthy to be in the presence of God. This is our situation. We too have no right to come before God's holy throne. We are sinners standing here in the presence of the holy and perfect God of all creation. We, like Isaiah, should be crying out, Woe is me, for I am undone. As we confess our sin, the paradox is that sin means we shouldn't be here. We should be destroyed for entering into this holy sanctuary where God has promised to be. We deserve to die for being in his presence, much less for speaking out to him, asking him to grant us our requests. Do we recognize that? Do we truly acknowledge our sin? Do we really realize and comprehend what that sin means when we are in the presence of God? We don't. And do you know why that is? Because we don't die. Because we're not struck down. Because when we enter through these doors into God's presence, it is not with fear and trembling and afraid that we will be struck down and dead because of something that we've done. But instead, it is with joy and wonderment. Because God himself has made us worthy. God has cleansed us of all of our sin. He's not only made us okay to be in his presence, he invites us to come before his throne. He invites us to enter into his presence with thanksgiving and praise and joy and wonder. When Isaiah cried out in despair, recognizing his desperate situation, recognizing that he deserved to die, God provided a solution. From the altar, an angel goes and takes a burning coal and touches Isaiah's lips. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that part, can you imagine Isaiah? Imagine the angel, 
the holiness whose voice shook the throne of the temple. Imagine him coming with a burning coal to touch your lips. Do we think he stood there and said, Yea, Lord, let it be unto me. Or do you think there was still fear recognizing that this should destroy me? And yet it didn't. It cleansed him. And the angel speaks, not in words that destroy Isaiah, but that lift him up. And says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God provided what Isaiah could not. God cleansed Isaiah of his sin and made him worthy to be in God's presence. And he cleansed all of it. Because just one sin, one speck, one blemish still would have left Isaiah unworthy and condemned. It was purely God's act of mercy that saved Isaiah's life. Not the mercy of overlooking his sin and saying, eh, we'll let it slide this time. Don't sweat it, Isaiah. You can come into my presence. No. All sin must be paid for in full, and no sin goes unnoticed or unpunished in God's perfect justice and righteousness. No sin is ignored or overlooked. But rather than punishing Isaiah as he deserved, rather than doling out his wrath upon Isaiah's sin, God himself took the punishment, suffering and dying for every transgression, every unclean word and thought, every sin and iniquity that Isaiah ever had or ever would commit. All of it was taken and paid for by God. Even though it wouldn't happen for another five centuries or so, Isaiah had faith in God's promised Messiah and his sacrifice for those who believe to take away the guilt of his sin. And so by grace, through faith, the wretched sinner Isaiah was spared from death at the hand of God by the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Looking forward in time to the promise, not knowing all the details, Isaiah had faith in God's plan of salvation, and by it and it alone, he was spared from the destruction that he deserved as a sinner. God had graciously given him his word, his promises, had given him faith to cling to those promises even when it seemed impossible. And by grace, Isaiah lived. And in the same way, God himself has provided for each of us when we cry out in desperation, when we recognize that we are sinners who deserve only eternal death and destruction. In faith, we too look to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ, just as Isaiah did. We too look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the promised Messiah, God in the flesh, who took all sins upon himself and paid the price in full with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. But where Isaiah was looking forward to a promise that he didn't know the details of, we look back. And we look back to the absolute, historical, completed sacrifice and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look back and see God's plan of salvation in full, enacted for us. We look back and see the truth of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, God himself, perfect and holy and without sin, giving himself for sinners like us, 
dying in our place, suffering the wrath of God that should have been ours for all eternity as he gave up his spirit on the cross for us. We look back and see the glorious truth of the open tomb where Jesus Christ broke the chains of death and rose again from the grave, just as he had promised he would, just as it had been foretold by the prophets like Isaiah. We look back and we see the truth in full, clearly, historically. We point to that moment in time and say, this is how I am saved. This is how God fulfilled his promises. This is why I can stand in God's presence. Our sin, just like Isaiah's, it's not ignored. It's not swept under the carpet. It's not just winked at by God. It is paid for in full by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We miserable sinners, we people of unclean lips, we have been declared holy, innocent, and righteous, worthy to stand in God's presence. And that's exactly what we do each and every time that we gather together as Christians. Church, it's not just some social time or time to catch up on the latest gossip or hear the pastor talk about some cheesy movie from the 90s. When we come before this altar, we stand in the very presence of God himself, holy, omnipotent, righteous, the creator of all things. By our sin, we are not worthy. We should not be allowed to live in his presence. But God himself has made us worthy, has cleansed us of our guilt. And just like with Isaiah, from his holy altar, he has touched our lips and he has taken away our sin, not with a burning coal, but with his own flesh and blood, given and shed for us. And while Isaiah may have trembled at the thought of a burning coal touching his lips, we too should tremble at the thought of the true flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, God himself, coming to us by our mouths. And yet, by that terrifying, powerful thing that we have no right to take on our own, we are cleansed. We are forgiven. Our sin is atoned for. As we partake of his holy supper, which he himself gives to us, we are forgiven of our sin. Through the waters of baptism, we are cleansed and united with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And once again, it is God giving of himself. The victory that he won on the cross and the empty tomb, it is given to us in full as we are given his kingdom, his righteousness, his perfection. Our sin is taken away forever, paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, death, and the devil because we have been set free by the sacrifice of God. God himself has clothed us in his own robe of righteousness. His own holiness and perfection covers up all of our sin, washes it away, removes it from us as far as the east is from the west, and makes us holy. And so because of this, we are no longer separated from his holy presence. We need not cry out in fear when we are in the presence of God. We need not grovel in fear and worry that he is going to destroy us. We are able to come to him at any time. And we do so with reverence, but with joy. When we are in need, which is always, we come into his presence knowing that he hears us, 
And that he gives us what he in his infinite wisdom knows is best. In praise and thanksgiving, we come into his presence rejoicing that he always bountifully provides for us. At any time, no matter where we are, by the cross of Jesus Christ, we are able to enter into the presence of the one true and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just able, but we are tenderly invited. And not that we have to make some long journey to meet him in a certain place, but he now dwells with us. He has said that he is with us always, even to the ends of the earth. But here, when we come into his presence as a congregation, as his people calling upon his name for forgiveness, God meets us in a very special way and makes us worthy to be in his presence. Isaiah, when he stood before the Lord, he cried out in fear and trembling, and rightly so. By our own deeds, we too deserve nothing but God's wrath, because we are by nature sinful and unclean. But God took mercy upon us. He washed us in the waters of baptism. He has touched our lips with his true body and blood and has atoned for our sin. Now we do not shake with fear as we enter into God's presence, but instead we tremble with excitement and joy, realizing just what God our Heavenly Father has done for us. He has taken away the guilt of our sin. We are no longer separated from him as we deserve, but rather we are united with him in his death and his resurrection, as he has declared us to be his beloved children, both here in this sinful world and forever in the perfect paradise of heaven that he has prepared and won for us. In the presence of God, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, because God, the one true and triune God, the almighty creator of all things, has given you his eternal grace. And by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of all of your sin, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.